Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Aubin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Aubin Resources is a Canadian gold exploration company with significant projects in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon. Jim, welcome to the program. It's been a couple of weeks since we've spoken. Let's update our audience about the intersects in the Golden Triangle with regard to Aubin Resources and the Forest Kerr property. Yeah, it has been a little while. We did put out some news. I think it was about the 25th. It was the long-awaited assays around the initial hole, the discovery hole that we had come out with that was so high grade. You know, it took us a long time, but we came out with an additional, I believe it was eight holes. Two were step out to the northeast about 40 meters, southwest about 40 meters, actually behind the first hole about 40 meters. So we had it all surrounded. Each one of those step outs, all the pads that we were drilling off of, we drilled at least two holes off of each one. Then we drilled another one sort of to the south and back through the zone. And yeah, we just wanted to see what the continuation of the zone was going to look like. And we basically hit in all of the holes but one. And then another hole we lost due to incompetent rock. So six out of those eight holes all had mineralization. And that mineralization varied from anywhere like one gram to 35 grams. So it's pretty alive. The system that we hit last year is pretty alive and there is the potential for high grade because we do have some of the holes that hit up to 35 grams a ton. And then of course you did have two ounces per ton in one of the holes, correct? Well, actually the first one that we'd put out at the beginning of the, our drill season because we rushed those holes, you could see it. You could see the gold in the core and it did come back 38 grams over 10 meters. Within that was six meters of like two ounces. I mean, it was tremendous, tremendous grades. And, and, you know, when you get grades like that, that's going to be tough to duplicate. And you step out 40 meters for the rest of these holes. Well, that's a reasonable step out. And to be able to still hit the mineralization, and some of them are very high grade, the intercepts are in any given hole, you'll have it anything from 2 meters to 12 to 15 meters. It's pretty good. That's really good mineralization. Now, you've got some strong ammunition here. By me saying that, I mean, we're both headed to the Silver and Gold Summit in a few weeks in San Francisco on the 28th and 29th at the Hilton in Union Square, and you'll be speaking there, and there'll be an interested audience of investors, of institutions, of people like myself looking at you and your story. What will you be saying to that audience, Jim? Well, we're very focused on, and thanks for mentioning that, that's going to be a good show. That's probably Probably one of the best exploration shows in the States now. But I'll be talking mainly about the size of the area that we're drilling. I mean, we're in a zone. This north boundary zone is part of a zone called the boundary zone, and we're learning more and more about it as we drill more holes. And, you know, I've got about 28 holes we're still waiting to report on. The zone itself is getting bigger. The boundary zone itself is four kilometers long and two kilometers wide and we have the uh, geochem analysis on the whole thing. The survey's been done. Now we've done a geophysical program over the whole length of it. 
So we'll end up, once we get that back and analyzed, we'll have coincidental targets to work with. And it's going to give us just a tremendous amount of information that we need. The area up there called the Golden Triangle is very, very complex. We know we've got four different ages of rock in this zone. We've got at least three different mineralizing events over millennia. So it's complex, but it's really what I call in the in the industry alive. Now, with some of the big producers there, companies like Goldcorp, what kind of conversations might you entertain at all, if any? Well, as far as they go, they've got a land package just to our north, which I talked to them about. We can do work on it. Would you do a financing with us and we'll take that project on and do the exploration work for you? The issue was it wasn't attached to my existing property, so I wanted it attached. And that that was early enough in this area where I could have secured the ground in between us and so that it's all connected. And then any work I do on my property could now be spread across all the claims, including theirs. For example, if I didn't like or we didn't come up with anything we wanted to really spend a lot of time on on their property, We could spend all the time on ours, but still apply the assessment work to their claims as well. But it was early stage for them. I think today, if I said something like that, they would probably go for it. But that's why you always keep in touch with the majors. And there's a lot of them now in the north paying attention. Barracks back up there, Goldcorp's up there, and they picked up the Kamenak project in the Yukon. Kinross is very involved up there. Cisco is now looking around up there. So as this whole area play, the Golden Triangle develops, you're going to get more and more interest and probably initially through finance for the juniors. And of course, the infrastructure has changed quite a bit in the last 10 years over there, hasn't it? Oh, it's huge. Huge. Our drilling costs right now are substantially less even than last year, but it's because of our ability to set up the camps closer to where we're working. Last year, it was at the big Alta gas camp, and that was a 20-minute flight back and forth every day for changing shifts, for moving core around to get from the camp up to the site where we're drilling. This year, we're at the Bob Quinn airstrip, which is straight east of where we're working, and it's a 10-minute flight. So we've cut our helicopter supply line in half and in terms of time used in the air because that's expensive. That generally equates to about 35% of your total costs. Drilling is about 30% and the rest is manpower and the logistics and all that. So we managed to knock it way down. So last year we were close to $400 a meter. This year we're well under $300 a meter. So big savings. There's a highway, there's roads to our property. There's a road right into the north end of the property. There's a road right into the south end of the property. They didn't exist 20 years ago. In the early days or 30 years ago. There was not even a highway to get there. It was all fixed wing aircraft that you used to have to get in there because a landing strip was built. But now it's power, access, everything's there. And one of the most important things is there's the contractors are there. The local communities have drilling companies. They're headquartered in the towns just to the north of us. So, And same with the helicopter companies. Now, of course, nobody can predict what the market's going to do. And everybody that does predict what the markets are going to do is typically wrong. That's been my experience as a journalist over the years. Having said that, how are you positioning the company? Or let me phrase this another way. Why should, with all the choices out there, not just in resources, but in commodities, and equities in general, why should a potential investor consider urban resources as part of their portfolio potentially? Well, in this environment we're in, I think where you want to be positioned is positioned for the discovery potential. We got more mileage out of discovery 
discovery, okay, we've hit high-grade gold, we need to understand more about where we're working, that got more excitement. It got more, well, the volumes, the liquidity was fantastic. The stock went up on massive volume. You wouldn't know we were in a bit of a commodity depression out there, but I think it's that early stage where you have that potential for discovery that's really getting the excitement because I know other guys up there that are in development. They're developing a resource and they're coming up with good numbers, but they're not getting the joy, right? They don't get the attention from the shareholder community. It's just, it's a big difference. And of course, if you have patience, this is the time to perhaps come in and become somebody who who owns part of that. If you want to wait until everyone's in, then you're going to pay a higher premium for that privilege, correct? Well, you are. You are. I mean, at this level, you're hoping for what they would call a multi-bagger. You know, you're going to get a four-bagger or a ten-bagger or something like that. This is the level of the expiration cycle that that can happen. Like this year, you know, we started out at about 10 cents and we went up to 50 through this first discovery cycle, and especially when we came out with that first hole that was spectacular. And now it's, you know, the next batch of holes, the stock has come back. So it's it's now a buy again and you can see it. It dropped back to 20. Now it's today it's at 24 and a half. Looks like it's going higher again. So you're going to get those a little bit of the ups and downs for the next little while as we report more and more holes. But now we're back in a cycle where you could benefit again. Of course, we're making no specific specific claims. We're talking about possibilities and potential. And I want to be really clear about that, but we're very, very hopeful that as a potential shareholder, you may, if you're patient, have a decent return on your investment. Right, Jim? Yep. Well, this is when that's going to happen. If it's going to happen, that's when it's going to happen. Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks in San Francisco at the Silver and Gold Summit on October 28th and 29th. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with James Pennant, the president and CEO of Aubin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Find their logo on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jerome Jabour, CEO and Director of Matinas Biopharma, trading as MTNB on the New York Stock Exchange. Matinas Biopharma is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company focused on enabling the delivery of life-changing medicines using its lipid nanocrystal LNC platform technology. Jerry, welcome back to the program. Ellis, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. If you don't mind, Jerry, give us an overview of the company for those that are just joining us for the first time. Sure. Ellis, the last time you know we were together, we talked about what is really driving our company forward for the last couple of years, and that's a platform delivery technology, a lipid nanocrystal delivery technology, which we apply to everything from small molecules all the way to complex nucleic acid polymers in the gene therapy area, things like messenger RNA and even gene editing technologies like CRISPR. But what I really think your audience would benefit from hearing about today is actually the product upon which this company was founded. And given some recent developments in the cardiovascular space, just in the last 48 hours, we find ourselves sitting on an asset which we believe has significant 
significant value to patients, but also to our stockholders. Now that it seems that omega-3s are going to be recognized as more than just supplemental therapy, they have the potential to become a driving force in the treatment of cardiovascular disease. Now, by driving force, you mean pretty much revolutionary in the space. And some of us, many of us are familiar with omega-3s, fatty acids. Why is this so crucial with regard to omega-3 as opposed to other treatments for cardiovascular issues, which uh, many families are familiar with, especially with the lifestyle that we lead here in the West? Yeah, Alice, that's a great question. And it's actually a question we wrestled with, or actually I wrestled with, with colleagues at a company called Reliant Pharmaceuticals, where we medicalized the first prescription omega-3. Everyone has heard about omega-3s for a long time and associated them with good health, but they traditionally thought of them as over-the-counter supplements. And so when we actually launched the first prescription omega-3 at a company called Reliant Pharmaceuticals in 2005, we had an opportunity to educate the public that we're not talking about crude fish oil here. What we're really talking about is highly purified, optimized omega-3 fatty acids. And it's those fatty acids that have the ability to regulate certain biomarkers in the body and have a positive impact on things like triglycerides, which are fat in the blood, and even on other cardiovascular biomarkers. And we took that product at Reliant called Loveza and sold it to GlaxoSmithKline in 2008 for $1.65 billion, and yet we were just scratching the surface of the potential for omega-3s. And it seems that a company called Amarin, because of its initiative and its perseverance in pushing its omega-3 through, earlier this week announced positive outcomes data. And that's really important and as you say, revolutionary in the cardiovascular space because it's a demonstration in thousands of patients that this type of therapy can have a statistically significant impact on the reduction of things like heart attack and strokes. And for years, no one wanted to believe that omega-3s could raise to the level of things like statin therapy and having such a robust impact on cardiovascular disease. But when Ameren announced yesterday morning that its drug had a 25% reduction on top of statin therapy of these cardiovascular outcomes, the world paid attention and the world rewarded and the market rewarded Ameren for its perseverance by taking its market cap up more than 300% to now over $4 billion. And I think the market actually rewarded Matinas. You only get rewarded in biotech and by your investors when you have not just relevance to a particular product category, but in our case, our legacy, our foundation in Matinas was built built on designing for the first time a drug to treat cardiovascular disease, an omega-3 to treat cardiovascular disease. And so MAT 9001, which is the product that this company was started on, is benefiting from Ameren's momentum and Ameren's data. And that usually doesn't happen simply by association. And in our case, in 2015, we had the foresight and the risk tolerance to do a head-to-head study against Ameren's Vesipa, where we showed that we were statistically superior to Facepa on four out of the six markers, biomarkers used in that study. And so investors are starting to take notice of that data and realizing that we are sitting on a potential best-in-class drug as Ameren has seen itself vault to a $4 billion market cap company. All right. Well, your current shareholders and investors, they see where this is going, but let's talk to the people that are not shareholders.
shareholders right now that are just hearing the story for the first time, and maybe a few of the folks that are investors that need a reminder, what is the strategy going forward? Where does this lead for Matina specifically? It's a great question. So essentially, we're sitting on a phase two asset, which has the profile of being a best-in-class drug. And you know the only roadmap or the best roadmap for investors to look at is what happened with the statin market. And the stagnant market in the 80s was very hot. And you had a drug that Merck sold called Zocor. And Zocor was one of the best statins at the time. And it had not only good results in a phase three study, but had outcomes data, which showed a benefit. And it grew to be a multi-billion dollar product. And then you had a little product called Lipitor. And Lipitor, although it came later than Merck's Zocor, had a better profile. It was 11% more effective at reducing bad cholesterol than Merck's Zocor. And Pfizer, even in the absence of outcomes data, took that Lipitor product and turned it into an $11 billion a year product. So here we find ourselves decades later in very much the same position as Warner Lambert and Pfizer did. We are sitting behind a company in Amarant, which is plowing the road and is creating a new class of drugs. Some are saying that this drug is worth upwards of $5 billion a year in sales. And we're sitting there on the basis and the foundation of head-to-head data against that drug that shows we're 300% more effective at reducing triglycerides, that we actually have a positive effect on impacting things like PCSK9. And our profile has demonstrated head-to-head that it's superior than a drug the analysts today are saying is worth $5 billion. And investors are just catching on. The data is publicly available. And all of a sudden, we have an asset which is sitting and looking like it could be the Lipitor of a new omega-3 class. Which is something that could be prescribed to, let's say, people like me with a family history of heart disease and people that are over 50 and 60 years of age, correct? That's correct. I mean, you're really looking at people who have triglyceride levels over 200, who have other sort of symptoms of heart disease. And that addressable patient population is between 30 and 40 million patients in this country. It's an enormous opportunity to solve a pretty complex and important unmet medical need. So down the road, are you a takeout candidate? Ellis, in this business, you position yourself by, by driving value. And we find ourselves now in, in the optimal position of having two really distinct and valuable assets. On the one hand, we're driving our platform delivery technology forward. And on the other hand, we're sitting on an asset in phase two that has the potential to be a blockbuster omega-3 product. We're opportunistic. We are evaluating a lot of opportunities on how to take that drug forward. You can imagine that the interest, now that Ameren has demonstrated that omega-3s can be viewed as true blockbusters and the opportunity to treat 40 million patients, there's going to be a lot of opportunity to bring in funds to either push that drug forward ourselves or take advantage of the interest of parties with substantial experience in commercializing primary care products and find the ideal partner either in the U.S. or on a global basis. So this data is new. It's fresh. It just came out yesterday morning. We're digesting it at the same time the market is, but we're excited by the opportunity we have, and we expect in the coming weeks and months that the value associated with MAT 9001 will only grow.
Let's talk about the board of this company because it's pretty impressive. The one thing you look at when you see our company and our market cap, which somehow, some way is under $100 million at this point. We don't expect it to be there for long, but you don't see a micro cap or a small cap board. Chairman of our company is a guy named Herb Conrad. He's the former president of Roche, former chairman of Pharmacet. He sold that company to Gilead for $11 billion in 2011. And just recently, we're thrilled to add Patrick Laporte to our board as vice chairman. Patrick has a distinguished career in the pharmaceutical industry, a great track record of success. Most recently, he was chairman and CEO of a company called Par Pharmaceutical. He sold that to TPG and took it private in a $2 billion transaction and then stayed on as chairman and steered it to an $8 billion exit to Endo in the last few years. And so we are slowly but surely adding the pieces here to really develop this company and grow it into what we believe believe can be a a significant value driver in the biotech and pharma space. You know, when we first met back in August and did our first interview, the company was trading at around 30 cents. I'm a little gray on that, but 30, 35, somewhere in that area. We've seen some very good moves in the market since then. And still, you're a micro cap company. You're not a mid-tier company. There's still potential upside. We don't want to speculate, but it certainly isn't a bad time to consider taking a look at Matinas. Without question, Alice. And I'm always very conservative in how I view our company, but I'm intent on creating value. And so, yes, in August, that's the level that we were at. And look how far we've come in a very short period of time. And none of the things that I forecast for you there in terms of the opportunity with our delivery platform, the strategic collaborations and the interest we have from companies in utilizing our technology to improve the profile of their drugs, nor taking into effect the progress we're making on our own portfolio in the anti-infective space has really taken root yet in our share price. So we're excited by our start to the fall. There's a long way left in 2018. We expect to continue to drive news flow. We're excited by each day and week that passes because I can see through our windshield here that there's a lot in front of us. We think investors will be very happy in coming along with us for the ride. But again, we're focused on driving value and growth and creating opportunities, most importantly for patients, but also for the stockholders who believe in us. Well, Jerry, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to more developments as they happen down the road. Thank you so much for joining joining me today on the program. Ellis, thanks as always. Take care and look forward to next time. I've been speaking with Jerome Jabor, CEO and Director of Matinas Biopharma, trading as MTNB on the New York Stock Exchange. Find them at matinasbiopharma.com. I'm Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jay Martin, the president of Cambridge House International, the host of the Silver and Gold Summit, to be held at the Hilton San Francisco Union Square on October 28th and 29th gathering the top thought leaders, CEOs, investment professionals, and retail investors from around the world, the Silver and Gold Summit provides an unmatched opportunity for investors to get a behind-the-scenes look at how to make money investing in the resource industry. Jay, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. We've got the Silver and Gold Summit coming up on the 28th and 29th of October. It's just a few weeks away in beautiful San Francisco. I'm excited about it because there's lots of opportunities potentially available in the market right now. Equities are cheap. The price of the physical metals is very reasonable. It may even go just a bit lower. It's a real opportunity for those that are smart and have patience. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And at this conference, we've got about 70 junior mining companies exhibiting largely Vancouver or Canadian base with exceptionally depressed prices, which is a massive opportunity for investors, especially if you've been in this space for a long time and you've put up with the last four or five years. Now we're seeing a great time to enter back in. These are companies, these are very strong companies that are plugging along, doing all the work, no matter what the market does, making some great strides in this market during the last couple of years. Yeah, and we're showcasing companies that are both extremely early stage, proving drill results through two producers because there's good opportunities. And right now, I think it's important to have a quite a diverse portfolio. Like I love the early stage stuff personally, but it's tumultuous. It's a bit uncertain and it's always good to have some solid companies with solid deposits and in production in your portfolio. We are building a feature at this conference called Drill Hole Glory, where we're going to be showcasing a bunch of early stage explorers who have proven really good results and investors should be paying attention. Time and time again with some of these companies that are getting incredible results is eventually their takeout candidates by companies such as Gold Corp, which is, of course, one of the exhibitors at your conference. Yeah, and that's why a lot of those companies attend, right? They're there for the same reason that our investors are. They're there to look at early stage opportunities. Tell us about some of the speakers you have. Sure. So we're opening up the event with a Hall of Fame reception on October 27th. So it's actually the day before the conference. All attendees are welcome. It's on site at the Hilton and we're inducting Rick Rule into the Hall of Fame. And this has become a tradition at Cambridge House conferences, both in Vancouver and San Francisco. And previous winners have been the likes of Ross Beattie and Doug Casey and Frank Holmes and Jim Dines. And so this year, all attendees, all investors and companies are welcome to join Join us at the Hilton for the opening reception and the Hall of Fame ceremony as we induct Rick into the Hall of Fame. We've got keynote speakers like Timothy Sykes, Grant Williams, Marion Katsusa, Doug Casey, and Rick Rule. One of my favorites, Frank Curzio. He runs the Wall Street Unplugged podcast, the number one most downloaded business focused podcast on iTunes and he's controversial and he's exciting and he's a great speaker coming up from New York. Altogether, I think we have over 50 speakers at this conference delivering keynotes, panel discussions or workshop presentations. And San Francisco is not only a financial center for the West Coast, but it's also a gateway to Asia as well. We expect a lot of global traffic at this event. We do because San Fran's easy to get to. Exactly. Yeah. There's multiple direct flights from every major city in North America and overseas. And, you know, we've got investors that fly down even from Vancouver just for one day. We heard about. So it's great. Jay, is there anything else you'd like to uh, add to this event that we haven't touched on this morning? Yeah. So the exhibit hall is filled with junior resource explorers, companies that are looking for metals. And what we've done in our speaker hall this year is try to assemble panels that really focus on the end use case. And so we've got a few features on battery tech and what the change in energy is, how that's affecting commodity prices. But we've also assembled a feature on silver and healthcare. We're looking at all the end use cases for silver mainly in the medical industry because there are tons and a lot of our investors aren't aware of. So this is why we're exploring for these metals and what the companies are looking to accomplish. Absolutely. Silver's always been an industrial metal as well as a speculative concern and, and we've not paid enough attention to that in the past. I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. Uh, Jay, I look forward to talking with you uh, very shortly as we get close to this conference. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with Jay Martin, the president of Cambridge House International, the host of the Silver and Gold Summit, to be held at the Hilton San Francisco Union Square on October 28th and 29th. Register now by clicking the link on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Morgan, a precious metals aficionado armed with degrees in finance and engineering. He created the morganreport.com website and originated the Morgan Report covering economic news, 
overall financial health of the global economy, currency problems, and the key reasons for investing in the resource sector. David considers himself a big-picture macroeconomist whose main job is education, educating people about honest money and the benefits of a sound financial system. He'll be attending and speaking at the Silver and Gold Summit in San Francisco, October 28th and 29th at the Hilton Union Square. David, welcome back to the program. Nice to have you on the air today. Well, it's been a while, Ellis. Thanks for inviting me. We are both going to be attending the Silver and Gold Summit October 28th and 29th in San Francisco at the Hilton at Union Square. What are you going to be talking about when you speak before the audience over there? Well, I'm going to tell people about the best gold discovery I've made in over four decades. You're not going to tell us now, I guess. (laughs) Well, I'm going to tease you now. Right now, first of all, I mean, most of the whole newsletter industry revolves around a bunch of hype that if you buy this certain mining company, you're going to get rich. I mean, that's the basics of it. I mean, if you just want to break it down and tell the truth, that's the truth. Now, that has happened, but the odds are stacked against you. It's basically one in 4,000. So, you know, if you put a dollar on every stock and you had 4,000 stocks out there and one, all of them failed and the one went up to 4,000, you broke even. I mean, I'm being a little facetious, but I'm also doing the math. So if there was a company out there that got their drill result of two ounces a ton, in other words, that's like two gold Krugerrands in the back of a pickup truck full of rock. That's such a rich find. It's unbelievable. So if there was any junior mining company that was exploring and had a drill result like that, it would go absolutely ballistic. It'd be in every chat room on the planet that deals in gold. And everybody would know about it, and everybody would be talking about it, and the stock would just be going crazy. But since this is not a mine per se, it's a technology that precipitates gold out of electronic waste. On the low end, under two ounces a ton, that's an exaggeration. It's not quite that high, but that's the low end. It goes up from there. And no one is paying any attention to it. The only people that are aware of this are people that are premium members of the Morgan Report, the paid service, the premium members. A couple of interviews I've done, like yours, where the interviewer knew the name of the company because he was a subscriber to the Morgan Report premium service. And he interviewed me, and I told told him everything he asked me. And a few people stumbled upon it, but basically it's unknown. And I find this intriguing because it's tough from my perspective because we do the research. We don't mind being early. We don't mind being first. In fact, it's a little bit of a feather in your cap to be first if you're right. If you're first on XYZ mining, it fails, and then you put out ABC mining, it fails. If you just play in a painting pool world all the time, the odds are against you. I mean, you're going to have a lot of exploration failures and very little exploration success, but that's the reality of that part. You know, the Morgan Reports always looked at top-tier cash rich unhedged mining companies that are streaming companies, royalty companies, so our people are making money no matter what the price does in the gold or silver markets. And that's the smart way to play it. And that's where the big money goes because you want to make money with money. And then we do the mid-years and we speculate like everybody else because I didn't do speculations that probably be out of business because that's what the major part of the industry involves. So there's going to be what I call a big reveal, Ellis. And the big reveal is that someone in the industry that you're well acquainted with called me and asked me if I would do a public domain article about this situation. And I hemmed and hawed and said, I really don't know because it's about my only opportunity to get new people into the premium service, the paid service. And he said, well, I think you'd be smart 
to do this because, you know, once people know about it, it will help the people that, you know, you've introduced to this company. And stocks already run from 40 cents to $2. And now it's $100. And I said, well, what's in it for me? Because I really felt like something had to be there that would be beneficial to my members and kind of people far at work and everything else. So he stated that he would allow me to ask people to sign up for the free market for the free list. And this is still being negotiated, Ellis. So, I mean, this whole thing could, you know, go away. But I also know the guy and I think it's, he's very serious about it. It's a matter of editorial content and us agreeing to what gets put on the, on the public domain. So that's the big reveal and it should be happening within a few weeks. It'll probably happen before the show that we're going to. So depending on what happens time-wise, I will probably just do a slide presentation and I've actually featured this in the past because uh, I've been following the story from the very, very, very beginning. In fact, I followed it for months and months before I even wrote the first word on it because it wasn't so much a matter of trust. It's a matter of show me, don't tell me. I don't want to write something that it could do this. I want to make sure that it would do this. So anyway, depending on how this whole thing comes out, I will be uh, talking about this one way or the other, either directly, here's the symbol, here's the place, whatever. Or if it still hasn't been released, then I might just uh, show all the goods without giving the symbol. And, you know, most of these people have heard the story before because I've been pretty enamored with this technology. It's a green technology. This is the thing that's so fascinating is this stuff is a nerd. It's pH about six. It's basically neutral. And the other thing that's interesting on the story, Ellis, is that there was a Dragon's Den situation that was put up in Canada, which is, I guess, the equivalent of our shark tank, that had a, a competitive company. And the story behind that, I won't share the air because it's so unbelievably different than what was portrayed on TV. Uh, I don't want to do it verbally because I don't want any uh, problems. My own work, I'm allowed to write whatever I want and I have it all documented. So people that are premium members are kind of getting the inside what's what and who's who and where's where. So I'll leave that as it stands. Well, David, what I find fascinating, first of all, I thought I knew who the company was, two ounces per ton, but then you mentioned unique technology that I was not aware of. So I'm going to go back to, I have no idea. And I'll just have to wait till the big reveal myself at the conference or a little bit beforehand, as you say. Be that as it may, there have been some good results over the summer and during the fall with some mining companies, some prospectors, and the market has shown some love, but uh, over a period of time, it has not. What would you say about that? Well, it's sluggish. I mean, it's down. I mean, the markets and the precious metals have been languishing for quite some time. Gold is struggling to stay around the 1200 Once it starts to get a little oomph to the upside, it seems to get hammered down. Silver can't even get back to 15. Going back to the stocks, I'm not trying to stay I'm the best stock picker in, in this sector, but I probably am. Excuse the ego, folks, but those are for members. People that subscribe would know that. All the trolls that say that I, I'm not never paid me a dime. But there's one speculation on the exploration side that I own that's in the mortgage report. You can see what I'm doing. And it's doubled this year in this really crappy silver market. Doubled. They increased their land position by really good speculation. I mean, you know, if you put in your money at a buck and it's already two or put it in at two and it's already at four and they triple their land position, Plus, the team is beyond reproach. I mean, they are one of the best geological mine trusts in the entire world. There's no doubt. 
So if you are a true silver and gold bug, that is who you are. If you're a follower of, of David Morgan and the Morgan Report, you're going to be at the show in San Francisco at the end of the month, are you not? Yeah, I'll be there at the end of the month and, you know, we'll see what happens, uh, you know, from this time until then. David, when this technology comes out with regard to this public company, how am I and your other subscribers going to learn about it during the course of our day? Well, two ways. There's two ways. There's one guaranteed way, and that's to get on the free market report, not the premium service. Simply just go to themortgagereport.com, give me a name and a, a valid email, then you'll get a double opt-in, meaning we'll send you an email to the address you just gave us. You have to click, yeah, it's me, I'm not a robot, and you're in. And we will, of course, put this out to everybody that's on the free list. And the other way is that if you're on this other list, you'll be notified, I guarantee it. Third way, actually, is that this company, not my company, this other company, will be using a huge amount of Google ads and AdWords talking about, and I don't know their ads, I'm not writing an ad for them, but perhaps you'll see uh, two ounces pretend gold, biggest gold discovery in the last 40 years. I don't know. <laughs> They'll say something like that. So if you see a Google ad that comes up like that and they click it, then that's going to direct them to this article that I wrote, but it is not on my website. It may be mirrored on my website, but I, I'm writing this ad. I'm not getting paid for not getting paid to write this article. I do own the stock. And so does the individual that is going to pay for the Google AdWords. He also does it. But we're both above the board type of people do what is required by the SEC and all that. And that's the way we're supposed to do it. We will. So, yeah, that's the best, easiest way. Just get on the free market report. And if you want to get ahead of the game, if you think by getting in now before this goes global or catches fire or goes viral, then you might consider a premium subscription to the market report at 50 bucks a month. Well, David, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program. It's been a pleasure, Ellis. Thank you. I've been speaking with David Morgan of TheMorganReport.com. He'll be attending and speaking at the Silver and Gold Summit in San Francisco, October 28th and 29th at the Hilton Union Square. Register now for the Silver and Gold Summit by going to our website, EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with John Thaler, the founder of JAT Capital Management, a multi-billion dollar global equity investment firm based in Greenwich, Connecticut. The firm invests both long and short in equities in the telecom, media and technology, and travel area, and gaming sectors. John, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Good to be with you. What are the major current trade issues between Canada and the U.S. with regard to cannabis, in your opinion? Well, the major trade issue between the U.S. and Canada is that cannabis is not legal in the U.S., so you literally could not uh, export cannabis from Canada to the United States with very limited exceptions. So there, there is no such thing as export today. Were cannabis to be legalized federally in the United States, that would at least become an issue that would be on the table. Do you see any daylight with regard to that happening in the next two years? Yeah, I think you're still... I mean, certainly the Democrats in the United States government have been in favor of that. You're starting to see some openness to it by conservatives. The Trump administration and the DOJ have openly stated that they're open to it. So I could see it happening. You've got, I think, broad public support for it. So I do think that that is something that will eventually happen. Does it happen inside of the Trump administration is a question. I would guess that the next time the Democrats control the government in the United States, uh, cannabis will become legalized federally. Is there some sort of issue wrapped up in this tariff war that we're having globally, I guess, especially with Canada? No, I, I don't think that that's really part of it. I, I, 
I do think that there's an open question about if cannabis were legalized in the United States today, will Canadian cannabis suppliers be allowed to export cannabis to the United States? I think that that's a very real question. Certainly, investors should be considering that. And I think that would certainly become part of this tariff conversation. Now, that being said, it would be my opinion that the NAFTA situation that we're dealing with today between the United States and Canada will likely be resolved in front of cannabis being legalized in the United States. I don't expect that to be a major impediment to cannabis exports to the United States. I think there are several other impediments, but I don't expect that to be one of them. Well, most, if not all of the Canadian companies that are directly involved in cannabis, the substance itself, are listing in Canada because it'd be suicide to do that here right now in the U.S. And it's a huge market or it's a grow, it's a burgeoning market and there's a lot of interest in that. What potentially happens to these companies when it's federally legal here in the U.S.? Do they go south or do they have a business that can sustain itself in the public forum in Canada? There's two issues at hand. So one is, you just said, do they have business that sustain their companies in Canada? The answer to that is certainly yes. I think the cannabis is about to be legalized recreationally in October of this year. So there will be demand for it and those companies will have a decent business. Now, it relates to the stocks and the expectations that have been laid out to investors in these companies. That's an entirely different thing. You have market caps of these companies that are 10, 20 billion dollars. There is no scenario where the Canadian market could support those valuations. So Wall Street, at least, is expecting legal cannabis in certainly the U.S. and likely places outside of the U.S. Now, the question we all need to ask ourselves is, if and when cannabis becomes legal in the United States, where are we buying it from? Look, the reality is that at the moment, the companies in this space are farming companies. They own greenhouses and they're planting seeds in the ground and they're growing a plant called cannabis. There's very few instances where one country dominates a crop of a particular plant. Uh, and I don't expect cannabis to be one of those either. You know, if and when cannabis is legalized in the United States, I suspect you're going to see a lot of big farming companies plant cannabis in the United States. And the U.S. consumers who are consuming cannabis will likely be consuming U.S. cannabis. Uh, and I don't think we need tariffs to do that. I mean, fundamentally speaking, a cannabis plant is not that much different than a tomato or corn. There's no reason for us to be buying it from somewhere else. Well, it's a weed, isn't it? Oh, that's right. It is. But what these guys are doing is buying up old warehouses and converting them into greenhouses. You and I could get into that business this afternoon. Were it legal? I mean, this exists currently in Colorado and California. The reason we're not talking about Colorado weed companies is at the moment, the only place that those companies can sell is in Colorado. The second this becomes legalized federally, those Colorado companies will also try to sell to people in Texas and New York and everywhere else where it's not legal presently. But you know, if you talk to cannabis companies in Colorado, for example, about the prospects of what's going to happen if and when it becomes legal nationwide, that's a bad thing. I mean, you, when you talk to management teams of cannabis companies in those states, I don't know that they necessarily think it's a good thing for their business that the U.S. legalizes it because the second it becomes legal, are people in Texas going to be buying cannabis from Colorado weed suppliers? I mean, maybe they will, but I can assure you that people in Texas will start planting cannabis as well. It's just the kind of thing where 
there's really no barrier to new supply coming on the market. And, and frankly, when you look at Colorado's interesting case study, cannabis has been legal there for several years now. The wholesale price of cannabis is down like 75% in the last five years because there's just so much supply coming online. You know, So when, when this becomes legalized nationwide, there's going to be essentially infinite supply. Prices are going to come down significantly. And I think when you, when you talk to management teams in this space, all of them will probably concede that the, the only real value that where anyone's going to make money in this space are on the brand. The anecdote that gets repeated to me often is it's not a great business to mix sugar and water. Certainly, you and I wouldn't choose to go try to get into that business. However, Coca-Cola makes a lot of money selling sugar water, and they have polar bears sliding down slides, and consumers buy their product. And cannabis will be the same thing. There will be brands that consumers recognize 10 or 20 years from now as the place where you can get high-quality cannabis, and the guys who actually harvest the cannabis will be similar to the guy who makes the hops for the beer. Those will be companies that you probably won't know who they are. They'll probably have fine little cash-flowing businesses, but the real money to be made here will be in the brands. So then again, it becomes basically a blue-chip stock scenario down the road, right? Yeah, I mean, look, these companies are trafficking very lightly because it's at the moment in the United States is considered a narcotic and is illegal. But you have had commentary from the beer companies, Constellation Brands, in fact, has made a big investment, one of the Canadian cannabis suppliers, but Coca-Cola has been open about their interest in getting into this space. So if you envision the day after the U.S. government passes this legislation, I think you're going to have every one of the major suppliers getting into the space. And the question is, 10 years from now, if you and I were to walk into a convenience store and buy a cannabis-infused beverage, is it more likely that we're buying one produced by Anheuser-Busch or Coca-Cola or some company that you've never heard of today? It's possible. New brands come up all the time, but the marketing power of the blue chips is just difficult to compete with if you're a small player. And then the Canadian cannabis companies, as an example, these companies are all tiny today. So I think they'll certainly give a good effort in trying to compete with the Coca-Colas and the Anheuser-Buschs of the world. It's just a, a long shot. So John Thaler, it's a bubble, right? Right now for these small cap companies that are in the cannabis space in Canada? From a valuation standpoint, there is no question these things are a gigantic bubble. There is very little rational explanation one could provide for one of these things being 10 or $20 billion today. I mean, if you look, again, cannabis isn't even legal in Canada today. It will be on October 17th. But all these things are today are farming companies that have built some capacity to harvest cannabis. And each of them has spent between, call it 50 and $200 million to build greenhouses and plant cannabis in the ground, but that's all they have. So the point being, if you and I went out and spent $50 million buying up greenhouses and planting cannabis in the ground, you and I would at that moment have the exact same thing that every one of these Canadian cannabis companies has. The only difference being they have a $20 billion market cap and you and I would have a $50 million warehouse facility. That fundamentally makes no sense. So to buy any of these things today, you're really making a bet on whether these companies will be the brand that consumers recognize 10 years down the road. Which again, it's it's certainly possible, but it's just a long shot. Is there any hope for uh, some of these companies with regard to folding into big farm, let's say, or big alcohol or tobacco or what have you? Uh, Is that a good game plan for some of these? And would you risk investment in that? Well, it's interesting. The the big pharma stuff is an interesting thing because when you talk to guys in Colorado, as an example, about what has happened over the last five years in the legal cannabis market, the medicinal market in Colorado has been eviscerated. And when you talk to Colorado companies about what has occurred, it makes sense, right? So now I can basically go anywhere I want in Colorado and buy cannabis of all flavors. So the question is, if I had some medical situation where I wanted to take cannabis to treat myself, I 
could either set up an appointment with my doctor, go meet him, have him write me a prescription, go get it filled at a pharmacy, or I could walk a block down the street and buy cannabis often at a cheaper price than what I'm getting through my doctor. So the medicinal market in Colorado has been totally destroyed. So I think one of the things that's probably misunderstood is that over the next 20 years, if you envision a scenario where cannabis is legalized broadly around the world, I don't know what the market is for medicinal cannabis. There's no reason for it. I don't, I don't know that Big Pharma really has any interest in this. Now, the alcohol and tobacco companies, absolutely, I think that all of them are looking at this. There's definitely the view that cannabis-infused beverages and traditionally smoked cannabis will be, at the very least, cannibalizing some portion of the existing beer and wine and tobacco markets. So I think it's prudent for the companies that are operating those spaces today to be paying close attention to this and likely hedging their bets by investing in the space. Uh, and as I said, Constellation Brands has just made a significant investment by investing in canopy growth. When you talk to CEOs in those spaces, though, the question becomes, and I think the Constellation Brands investment in canopy is probably misunderstood. I mean, the intention for that capital investment is to just go start buying up brands around the world. It's not to build supply because everybody would recognize that once cannabis is legalized, I can go build supply very cheaply anywhere I want. That the issue is not going to be getting your hands on cannabis supply is not going to be the problem. The problem is going to be in local markets like California, what are the brands that people associate with cannabis? And I think if you're the guy who owns Corona beer and there's a point in time five years from now where some percentage of the beer consumers are desiring to buy cannabis beer instead of alcohol beer, I think Corona would like Corona to be the brand that people associated with it. And that's really the play there. So I expect the players in those markets to want to participate in the consumer end demand. Again, when you look at the Canadian cannabis companies today, all they are is farming companies. I don't expect any of the big players to really have a significant interest or desire to own cannabis supply. I think that the interest is going to be more in owning the brands that consumers associate with the market. But I do agree that that is likely to be a significant market over the coming years. So that is the only play, the beverage play, more or less. We can forget about tobacco because everybody can grow it at home like they did in the 70s, ultimately, correct? Yeah, I don't think there is a big business case for owning the, the plant. I, I think the beverage thing is, is going to be interesting. But again, if you think about a can of beer, there's alcohol and, and hops inside of that. And then those are not typically controlled by the beer companies. They buy that from somebody else. So I think all Ultimately, and this is open to debate because, because, again, there's not a market for this stuff today. So the question is, of all the cannabis that's consumed 10 years from now, how much of that is going to be smoked? How much of it is going to be vaped? And how much of it is going to come through other products like either edibles or beverages? When you talk to the companies in the space, I think it's much easier to uh, attach margin to beverages simply because consumers have at least some comfort. You walk into a convenience store and you have a sense for how much six cans of a beverage costs. And therefore, I can make margin by putting cannabis inside of a beverage and selling it at a dollar a can. It's much more difficult to compete with the guys who are selling smokable cannabis because the prices are just too easily plundered. And again, in Colorado, that's been the experience. The edible and beverage market in Colorado is actually a fairly small piece of the total today, but one of the few places where anyone's making even a, a small bit of money. The market for selling smokable cannabis in Colorado has been a total disaster. The supply has grown too fast. The market is, is actually quite big, but it's very difficult for anybody to sustain any market 
margin in it because there's just too much competition and too much supply. Now, John, you're very knowledgeable about the space. Uh, does that mean that you're looking at it in any way as a investment portal for funds that you're in control of? Yeah. You know, anytime we have a market like this, which is nascent and likely to be quite big, which this is absolutely is, cannabis is going to be legalized around the globe in steps, but that, that is likely to occur. It's going to be a giant market. It's going to impact a lot of companies up and down the food chain. So we follow it closely. And as I said, I think the stuff that's trading today, you know, as is true for most new markets, there's a little bit of a bubble here. So I'd be very, very cautious about participating in the current stocks at these valuations. I would expect that the, all these things settle back down at lower levels at some point. And then it'll be interesting to see. And again, from my perspective, you want to be long the stuff that has brands that consumers understand. And if and when these companies start achieving that, that becomes very exciting. But the question for that investors need to be paying close attention to is how are these brands going to compete against Coca-Cola, Anheuser-Busch, and Philip Morris? And it's possible that one of them escapes through the muck here in the near term. And that would be a very interesting thing to invest in. I think if you're looking at a beer company, it becomes tricky because I do think, look, beer sales are already under pressure. If you start thinking about 10, 20, 30% of the beer market going to cannabis beverages over the course of the next decade, that's a challenge for the beer companies. And then you have to ask yourself whether they're going to be able to replace it with cannabis beverages of their own. So it's tricky. So I think all of this is, uh, there's a lot of volatility happening in the space. And I think it's a good place for investors to apply some research and get some kind of edge on it. So are you buying uh, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Anheuser-Busch or any of these brands right now? No, at the moment, cannabis as a percentage of their business is zero. They're not exposed to it at all. I mean, Constellation Brands now has taken a sizable investment in the space that has been met not very positively from the investment community because it's just, you know, they've taken $4 billion and invested it in canopy growth for something that is totally unknown at the moment. There's not a real way to play this at the moment in the stock market other than through the cannabis companies, which is why you're seeing the stocks do what they're doing, which is go straight up. I would probably err on the side of either not being involved at the moment or maybe being small short some of the publicly traded companies, waiting for them to correct and come back to a normal level. Again, my perspective on the current cannabis companies is these are just farmers who have invested a couple hundred million dollars in greenhouses and that's it. So what would I pay for a $200 million greenhouse? Not that much more than $200 million is the answer, but some of these things are trading at $20 billion. It just doesn't make a lot of sense at the moment. So you know, we're going to pay close attention to it and then um, get involved when the opportunities arise. It's interesting. It's sort of like a real estate play with regard to these greenhouses and the land that they're on. It's fascinating. That is a good uh, analogy. It would be like a real estate business where there was infinite supply of real estate. And then you'd have to ask yourself, how do I get somebody to rent my space when there's infinite space on the block? And you'd have to figure out some reason to do that. And, and like I said, what is Coca-Cola other than that really? There's essentially infinite supply of sugar water, but Coca-Cola has created some reason why people buy Coke. I don't know why they do that, but they do. So the real estate market is an, is an apt analogy if there were infinite supply. Would you hypothetically buy a as yet undiscovered beverage brand that was about to go big in this space, whether it be CBD or cannabis, if it were to present a deck to you that looked, you know, like it made some sense? Well, so we've looked at a lot of those. I mean, the problem is there's a lot of those out there. And this starts getting a little bit outside of my field of expertise because we're looking for barriers to entry in the businesses that we invest in typically. So consumer products by definition 
definition, there's not a lot of barrier to entry other than scale. So companies like McDonald's or Amazon would be a great example of one in the internet space where the scale that they've achieved is the barrier to entry. You and I could go get into the business of selling cheeseburgers this afternoon. Very difficult to compete economically with McDonald's, however. So as, as we've seen some of these small private beverage companies that are either trying to use cannabis or CBD, the question is, well, how are you going to differentiate yourself from the field and and develop the brand that consumers are going to rely upon in your little market? That's a tricky one. So we've looked at a lot of them and we have not invested in any of them because it's it's difficult to understand how any of them will succeed over the, over the coming years. It's an interesting question because if I were to look at a private CBD or cannabis beverage company in California today, the valuation of those things that you can invest in them is significantly cheaper than the publicly traded cannabis companies that have, in many, most cases, have no brand and are simply planting cannabis in the ground. And I've passed on all the private ones that I've seen as well. My base case is just quite simply that over the next five or 10 years, it's most likely that the brands that you will associate with cannabis beverages are brands that you already know of today is my base case. So a couple of catchphrases that we can use for this entire conversation would be too soon and maybe not for us. Definitely too soon. Look, there will be things to invest in. There's no question. Look, this is going to be a market. You're taking something that has zero market dollars today and it's going to be gigantic. The estimates are all over the map, but you, you see guys talking about $200 billion of cannabis retail sales over the next 10 or 20 years. And I don't think that that's crazy. I think that that's reasonable and that's going to go to somebody. So it'll be an interesting thing. Even the companies like Coca-Cola, as I said, I would invest in Coca-Cola if I thought cannabis was going to be a meaningful driver of their business in the coming years. But at the moment, the answer is it's way too soon for that. Over the next 10 years, somebody is going to be the guy that gets those $200 billion of revenue. It's just way too early to understand who that is. And again, the dominoes that need to fall to make $200 billion even a legitimate thing to be talking about is you need the United States to legalize it, which I think is likely to occur. Is it going to occur this year? Probably not. Is it going to occur over the next decade? Probably yes. So you start talking about when can you invest in the space? You need first the U.S. to fall, and then you need guys to start investing money in the space. So we're probably at least two to five years out before I think a value investor could start thinking about investing money in the space credibly. John, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program. Thanks, Alice. I've been chatting with John Thaler, the founder of JAT Capital Management. Listen to the Yellow Smart Report in its entirety by finding us on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, or your favorite app. Or just go to ellismartreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the proof. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartreport.com.